0: Section Twenty Six of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume Two, from the Death of Alexander I until the Death of Alexander III, 1825 to 1894, by Shimon Dubnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by s Kim, manik Portugal. Chapter Twenty Six. INCREASED JEWISH DISABILITIES PART 1 1. THE Parliament COMMISSION AND NEW SCHEMES OF OPPRESSION The Temporal Rules of May third, 1882 had been passed, so to speak, as an extraordinary war measure, outside the usual channel of legislative action. Yet, the Russian government could not but realize that sooner or later it would be bound to adopt the customary legal procedure and placed the Jewish question before the highest court of the land, the Council of State. To meet this eventuality, it was necessary to prepare materials of a somewhat better quality than had been manufactured by the gubernatorial commissions and the Central Jewish Committee, which owed their existence to Ignatieff, forming part and parcel of the general anti-Jewish policy of the discharged minister. Even prior to the promulgation of the temporary rules, the Council of Ministers had called the Tsar's attention to the necessity of appointing a special high commission to deal with the Jewish question and to draft legal measures for submission to the Council of State. This suggestion was carried out on February 4, 1883. On each day, an imperial ukase was issued calling for the formation of a high commission for the revision of the current laws concerning the Jews. The chairmanship of the commission was first entrusted to Markov, a former minister of the interior, and after his untimely death, to Count Palen, a former minister of justice, who guided the work of the commission during the five years of existence. Hence its popular designation as the Palin Commission. The membership of the Commission was made up of six officials representing the various departments of the Ministry of the Interior and of one official for each of the ministries of Finance, Justice, Public Instruction, Crown Domains, and Foreign Affairs, and lastly of a few experts who were consulted casually. The new bureaucratic body received no definite instructions as to the period of time within which it was expected to complete its labors. It was evidently given to understand that the work entrusted to it could well afford to wait. The first session of the High Commission was held fully ten months after its official appointment by the Tsar, and its business proceeded at a snail's pace, surrounded by the mysterious air characteristic of Russian officialdom. For several years, the High Commission had to work its way through the sad inheritance of the defunct gubernatorial commissions, represented by mounds of paper with the most fantastic projects of solving the Jewish question, endeavoring to bring these materials into some kind of system. It also received a number of memoranda on the Jewish question from outsiders among them from public-minded Jews, who in most cases used Baron Horace Ginzburg as their go-between, memoranda which sought to put the various aspects of the question in their right perspective. After four years spent on the examination of the material, the Commission undertook to formulate its own conclusions, but for reasons which will become patent later on, These conclusions were never crystallized in the form of legal provisions. While the High Commission was assiduously engaged in the revision of the current laws concerning the Jews, in other words, was repeating the Sisyphus task abandoned by scores of similar bureaucratic creations in the past, the government pursued with unabated vigor its old-time policy of making the life of the Jews unbearable by turning out endless varieties of new legal restrictions. These restrictions were generally passed outside the law, i.e., without their being previously submitted to the Council of State, they were simply brought up as suggestions before the Council of Ministers and after adoption by the latter, received legal sanctions through ratification by the Tsar. Without awaiting the results of the revision of Jewish legislation which it had itself undertaken, the Russian government embarked enthusiastically upon the task of forging new chains for the hapless Jewish race. For a number of years, the High Commission was nothing more than a cover to screen these cruel experiments of the powers at the helm of the state. At the very time in which the ministerial officials serving on the High Commission indulged in abstract speculations about the Jewish question and invented various methods for its solution, the Council of Ministers anticipated this solution in the spirit of rabid anti-Semitism and was quick to give it effect in concrete life. The wind which was blowing from the heights of Russian bureaucracy was decidedly unfavorable to the Jews. The belated coronation of Alexander III, which took place in May 1883 and in accordance with Russian tradition, brought, in the form of an imperial manifesto, various privileges and alleviations for different sections of the Russian population, left the Jews severely alone. The Tsar lent an attentive ear to those zealous governors and governors-general, who in their most humble reports propounded the new-fangled theory of the injuriousness of the jews the marginal remarks frequently attached by him to these reports assume the force of binding resolutions in the beginning of eighteen eighty three the governor-general of odessa gulko took occasion in his report to the Tsar to comment on the excessive growth of the number of jewish pupils in the gymnasia And their injurious effect upon their Christian fellow-pupils. Gulkov proposed to fix a limited percentage for the admission of Jews to these schools And the Tsar made the annotation, I share this conviction, the matter ought to receive attention. The matter did, of course, receive attention. It was brought up before the Committee of Ministers. But the latter was reluctant to pass upon it at once, and thought it wiser to have it prepared and duly submitted for legislative action at some future time. However, when the Governor-General of Odessa and the Governor of Kharkov, in their reports for the following year, expatiated again on the necessity of fixing a school norm for the Jews, the Tsar made another annotation in a more emphatic tone. It is desirable to decide this question finally. This sufficed to impress the Committee of Ministers with the conviction that the growing influx of the non-Christian element into the educational establishments exert, from a moral and religious point of view, a most injurious influence upon the Christian children. The question was submitted for consideration to the High Commission under the chairmanship of Count Parland. The Minister of Public Instruction was ordered. To frame post haste an enactment embodying the spirit of the imperial resolution. Soon the new fruit of the Russian bureaucratic genius was ready to be plucked, the school norm, which was destined to occupy a prominent place in the fabric of Russian Jewish disabilities. The center of gravity of the system of oppression lay, as it always did, In the restriction attaching to the rights of domicile and free movement, restrictions which frequently made life for the Jews physically impossible by cutting off their access to the sources of uh, livelihood. The temporary rules of the 3rd of May displayed in this domain a dazzling variety of legal tortures such as might have excited the envy of medieval inquisitors. The May laws of 1882 barred the Jews from settling outside the cities anew, i.e., in the future, exempting those who had settled in the rural districts prior to 1882. These old time Jewish rustics were thorn in the flesh of the Russian anti Semites, who hoped for a sudden disappearance of the Jewish population from the Russian countryside. Accordingly, a whole set of administrative measures were put in motion with a view to make the life of the village Jews unbearable. In another connection, we had occasion to point out that the Russian authorities, as well as the Christian competitors of the Jews, made it their business to expel the latter from the rural localities as vicious members by having the peasant assemblies render special verdict against them. This method was now supplemented by new contrivances to dislodge the Jews. A village Jew who happened to absent himself for a few days or weeks to go to town was frequently barred by the police from returning to his home on the ground that he was a new settler. There are cases of Jewish families on record which, according to custom, had left the village for high holidays to attend services in an adjacent town or townlet, and which on their return home met with considerable difficulties, because their return was interpreted by the police as a new settlement. In the dominions of the anti-Jewish satrap Drentlin, the administration construed the temporary rules to mean that Jews were not allowed to move from one village to another or even from one house to another within the precincts of their native village. Moreover, the police was authorized to expel from the villages all those Jews who did not possess their own houses upon their own land, on the ground that these Jews, in renting new quarters, would have to make a new lease with their owners, and such a lease was forbidden by the May laws. These malicious misinterpretations of the law affected some 10,000 Jews in the villages of Cherenikov and Poltava. These Jews lived habitually in rented houses or in houses which were their property but were built upon ground belonging to peasants, and they were consequently liable to expulsion. The cry of these unfortunates, who were threatened with eviction in the dead of the winter, was heard not in nearby Kiev but in far-off St. Petersburg. By a senatorial ukase published in January 1884, a check was put on these administrative highway methods. The expulsion was stopped, though a considerable number of Jewish families had in the meantime been evicted and ruined. At the same time, other restrictions which were in like manner deduced from the temporary rules were allowed to remain in full force. One of these was the prohibition of removing from one village to another, even though they were contiguous so that the rural Jews were practically placed in the position of serfs being affixed to their places of residence. This cruel practice was sanctioned by the law of December 29, 1887. As a contemporary writer puts it, the law implied that when a village in which a jew lived was burned down or when a factory in which he worked was closed he was compelled to remove into one of the towns or townlets since he was not allowed to search for a shelter and livelihood in any other rural locality in accordance with the same law a jew had no right to offer shelter to his widowed mother or to his infirm parents who lived in another village Furthermore, a Jew was barred from taking over a commercial or industrial establishment bequeathed to him by his father if the latter had lived in another village. He was not even allowed to take charge of house bequeathed to him by his parents if they had resided in another village, though situated within the confines of the pale. While this network of disabilities was ruining the Jews, it yielded a plentiful harvest for the police from the highest to the lowest officials. GRAFT, the Russian Habeas Corpus Act, shielded the persecuted Jews against the caprice and violence of the authorities in the application of the restrictive laws and Russian officialdom held tightly to Jewish rightlessness as their own special benefice. Hatred of the Jews has, at all times, gone hand-in-hand with love of jewish money two jewish disabilities outside the pale outside the pale of settlement the net of disabilities was stretched out even more widely and was sure to catch the jews in its meshes throughout the length and breadth of the russian empire outside the fifteen governments of western russia and the ten governments of the kingdom of poland there were scattered a handful of privileged Jews who were permitted to reside beyond the pale, men with an academic education, 1st guild merchants who had for a number of years paid their guild dues within the pale, and handicraftsmen so long as they confined themselves to the pursuit of their craft. The influx of illegal Jews into this tabooed region was checked by measures of extraordinary severity. The example was set by the Russian capital, the window towards Europe, which had been broken through by Peter the Great. The city of St. Petersburg, harboring some 20,000 privileged Jews who lived there legally, became the center of attraction for a large number of illegal Jews who flocked to the capital with the intention deemed the criminal offense by the government of engaging in some modest business pursuit without paying the high guild Jews or of devoting themselves to science or literature without a diploma from a higher educational institution in their pockets. The number of these Jews who obtained their right of residence through a legal fiction by enrolling themselves as artisans or as employees of the privileged Jews were very considerable, and the police expended vast amounts of energy in waging a fierce struggle against them. The city governor of St. Petersburg, Gresser, who was notorious for the cruelty of his police regime, made it his specialty to hunt down the Jews. A contemporary writer, in reviewing the events of the year 1883, gives the following description of the exploits of the Metropolitan Police. The campaign was started at the very beginning of the year and continued uninterruptedly until the end of it. Early in March, the Metropolitan Police received orders to search most rigorously the Jewish residences and examine the passports. In the police stations, special records were instituted for the Jews. St. Petersburg was to be purged of the odious Hebrew tribe. The contrivances employed were no longer novel and were the same which had been successfully tried in other cities the jews were raided in regular fashion those that were found with doubtful claims to residence in the capital were frequently accompanied by their families immediately dispatched to the proper railroad stations escorted by policemen the time for departure was measured by hours The term of expulsion was generally limited to 24 hours or 48 hours, as if it involved the execution of a court martial sentence. And yet, the majority of the victims of expulsion were people who had lived in St. Petersburg for many years and had succeeded in establishing homes and business places which could not be liquidated within 24 hours or thereabout. The hurried expulsions from the capital resulted in numerous conversions to Christianity. Amusing stories circulated all over town concerning Jews who had decided to join the Christian church and had applied for permission to remain in the capital for one or two weeks, the time required by law for a preliminary training in the truth of the new faith, but whose petition was flatly refused because the police believed That a similar training might also be received within the boundaries of the pale of settlement. As a matter of fact, fictitious conversions of this kind were but seldom resorted to in the fight against governmental violence. As a rule, the evasion of the law was effected by less harmful perhaps but no less humiliating and even tragic fictions. Many a Jewish newcomer would bring with him on his arrival in St. Petersburg, an artisan's certificate, and enrolled himself as an apprentice of some full-fledged Jewish artisan. But woo betide if the police happened to visit the workshop and failed to find the fictitious apprentice at work. He was liable to immediate expulsion, and the owner of the shop was no less exposed to grave risks. Some Jews in their eagerness to obtain the right of residence, registered as manservants in the employ of Jewish physicians or lawyers. These would-be servants were frequently summoned to the police stations and cross-examined as to their character of their services. The answer expected from them was something like, I cleaned my master's boots, carry behind him his portfolio at court, etc., several prominent jewish writers lived for so many years in st petersburg on this flunkish basis among them the talented young poet shimon frug the singer of jewish sorrow who was fast establishing for himself a reputation both in jewish and in russian literature it can easily be realized how precarious was the position of these men any day their passports might be found ornamented by a red police notation ordering their expulsion from the capital within 24 hours all russia was stirred at that time by the sensational story of a young jewess who had come to st petersburg or moscow to enter the college courses for women and in order to obtain the right of residence found herself compelled to register fictitiously as a prostitute and take out a yellow ticket. When the police discovered that the young woman was engaged in studying instead of plying her official trade, she was banished from the capital. In 1886, England was shocked by the expulsion from Moscow of the well-known English member of parliament, the banker Sir Samuel Montague, later Lord Swetling. Despite his influential position, Montagu was ordered out of the Russian capital within 24 hours like an itinerant vagrant. None of these tragedies, however, was able to produce any effect upon the ringleaders and henchmen of the Russian inquisition. The energy of the authorities spent itself primarily in the fight against the natural yet, according to the Russian court, illegal struggle of the Jews for their existence and against the sacred right of men to move about freely the merciless russian law trampling upon this inviolable right drove human beings from village to town and from one town to another in the hotbed of militant judeophobia in kiev raids upon illegal jewish residents were the order of the day during the year 1886 alone more than 2,000 Jewish families were evicted from the town. Not satisfied with the expulsion of the Jews from the towns prohibited to them by law, the authorities contrived to swell the number of these towns by adding new localities which were part of the pale and, as such, open to the Jews. In 1887, the large South Russian cities, rostov on the Don and taganrog were transferred from the pale of settlement to the tabooed territory of the don army those jews who had lived in these cities before the promulgation of the law were allowed to remain but the new settling of jews was strictly forbidden not satisfied with constantly lessening the area in which without any further restrictions the jewish population was gasping for breath the government was on the lookout for ways and means to narrow also the sphere of Jewish economic activity. The medieval system of Russian society with its division into estates and guilds became an instrument of Jewish oppression. The authorities openly followed the maxim that the Jew was to be robbed of his profession to the end that it may be turned over to his Christian rival. Under Alexander II, the government had endeavored to promote handicrafts among the jews as a counterbalance against their commercial pursuit and had therefore conferred upon jewish artisans the right of residence all over the empire the change of policy under alexander III is well illustrated by the ukase of eighteen eighty four closing the jewish school of handicrafts in zitomir which had been in existence for twenty three years the reason for the enactment is stated with brazen impudence. Owing to the fact that the Jews living in the towns and townlets of the southwestern region form the majority of handicraftsmen, and thereby hamper the development of handicrafts among the original population of that region, which is exploited by them, the existence of a specific Jewish school of handicrafts seems In view of the lack of similar schools among the Christians, an additional weapon in the hands of the Jews for the exploitation of the original population of that region. Here, the pursuit of handicrafts is actually stigmatized as a means of exploitation. The true meaning of that terrible word, an invention of the Russian government, is thereby put in a glaring light. The jew is an exploiter so long as he follows any pursuit however honorable and productive in which a christian might engage in his stead the slightest attempt of the jew to enlarge his economic activity met with the relentless punishment of the law the jewish artisan though permitted to live outside the pale had only the right to sell the products of his own workmanship when found to sell other merchandise which was not manufactured by him, he was liable under Article 1171 of the Penal Court, not only to be immediately expelled from his place of residence, but also to have his goods confiscated. The Christian competitors of the Jews, shoulder to shoulder with the police, kept a careful watch over the Jewish artisans and saw to it that a Jewish tailor should not dare to sell a piece of material, a watchmaker, a new factory- made watch with a chain being only allowed to repair old watches, a baker, a pound of flour, or a cup of coffee, the discovery of such a crime was followed immediately by cutting short the career of the poor artisan in accordance with the provisions of the law End of section twenty six